0: Change can be a hard thing. How do we make change happen? How do we accept change? How do we cope with it and respond to it? Change has been the subject of many books over the years. Books like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Who Moved My Cheese or Our Icebergs Are Melting. I've read a couple of those books. One I haven't read, but I like the straightforward title, is called Switch. How to change things when change is hard. Well, that kind of encapsulates Peter's situation today as we come to Acts chapter 9 and 10. How to change when things are hard. While it's true that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, sometimes... At key moments in the history of redemption, God makes change happen in the way He relates with and deals with mankind. God makes change happen in the way He relates with and deals with us. For instance, the way God brings salvation through faith alone has not changed since the fall, for ever since Genesis 3, where God said Eve's offspring would have victory over the serpent. And Genesis 15, where the Scripture said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, it has been clear that God only saves sinful man one way, by the way of faith and through a Savior. All the promises of the Old Testament, the promises to Adam and Eve, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, even the law of Moses, including its sacrifice and its feasts like Passover, all pointed to the fulfillment at some point in the future when God would bring change. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 4, "...when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts." The life, death, and resurrection of Christ has brought change. The change that all the Old Testament had pointed to. Already in the book of Acts, we have seen that change begin. What kind of change? Well, the coming of the Spirit on display on the day of Pentecost to indwell believers permanently through faith in Christ. The taking of the gospel to mixed race Jews north of Jerusalem in the region of Samaria by Philip had signaled a change. This was foretold by Christ in Acts 1, as Jesus charged the apostles to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This broader spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth was hinted at with the Ethiopian eunuch coming to faith in Christ. The change we saw last week was the conversion of Saul, also known as Paul. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Roman name. The conversion of Saul saw God change the heart of the greatest enemy of the early church into one who will become the greatest evangelist for Christ. So much so that later Paul would come to understand that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. As now Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples of the world, people like us, would hear the good news about Christ. Through Paul and those who would follow him, the gospel would come to all nations of the world, just as God had promised Abraham millennia before. That brings us to chapter 9 and verse 32 of Acts. And one more very important bridge, one more important change that must be built before the gospel moves beyond the land of Israel. Peter now comes back on the scene. There is a danger facing the early church as it moves into this new era of ministry among the Gentiles. The danger is two different churches could easily develop. A Jewish church and a Gentile church. To this point in Acts, the church is primarily a church of the Jews who have come to faith in Christ. They have continued to follow many Jewish religious practices involving circumcision, observance of the Sabbath, the feast days, and the dietary rules of the law of Moses. The Gentiles, on the other hand, want nothing to do with circumcision or their dietary laws. Even the God-fearing Gentiles, those who were sympathetic to the Jews and practiced certain aspects of the Jewish religion, but they didn't participate in circumcision and they didn't follow the Jewish dietary laws. This is why Jews had so little contact with Gentiles. I mean, if you can't eat with someone, you usually don't socialize with them. You don't have lunch. You don't go to their house. Why? Because they and their homes are unclean. They are sinful. They don't follow the law of God, so the Jews would not socially interact with them. You can see the problem, can't you? A Jewish church and a Gentile church were coming if there isn't a change. That's why God takes us back to Peter again. Peter is that bridge that as an instrument of God's hand can make change happen. Peter is recognized as the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem. He has been the key character so far in the book of Acts, and it is Peter that God will use to bring Gentiles into the church, and God will do it in such a way that the Jewish Christians will accept them and we will have one unified church. It will take us two Sundays to complete the story of the Gentile inclusion in the church to bring Jew and Gentile together. But this section, which starts in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, and runs clear through chapter 11, verse 18, starts with Luke telling us about two miracles involving Peter. Keep in mind, Peter has spent almost all of his time at the church in Jerusalem. Other than one trip to Samaria, he hasn't been out much. And now the setting of these two miracles is in the cities of Lydda and Joppa on the coastal plain of Sharon. Along this plain on these roads and at the seaport in Joppa, much shipping, commerce, and travel takes place. There's a cosmopolitan flavor to these cities. They are influenced by Gentiles in a much more significant way than those in and around Jerusalem. God will use these two miracles to verify and authenticate the ministry of Peter as an apostle, as a messenger of God to these people and in this region of Israel. They may have heard stories of what Peter has done through Christ in and around Jerusalem, but these people haven't seen it with their own eyes, and now they will. There's four parts to the message this morning. Part 1, healing the sick in Lydda. Chapter 9, verses 32 to 35. Part 2, raising the dead in Joppa. Chapter 9, verses 36 to 43. Part 3, Cornelius sees a vision. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. And part 4, Peter sees a vision. in chapter 10, verses 9 to 23. So part 1, healing the sick in Lydda. Follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 9, verse 32. "'Now as Peter went here and there among them all, "'he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. "'There he found a man named Aeneas, "'bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. "'And Peter said to him, "'Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. "'Rise and make your bed.' "'And immediately he rose.' And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. In the healing of Aeneas, we have a manifestation of the grace and the healing power of God to those who are helpless. The saints at Lydda were probably converted through the preaching of Philip the Evangelist. What we are told in verse 40 of chapter 8 is that Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns, that he came until he came to Caesarea. Well Lydda is on the way to Joppa, with its port and its seashore, not far from Azotis. And so we assume that these Christians in Syria are the products of Philip's ministry from Acts chapter eight. Well there was a man there by the name of Aeneas. Aeneas was paralyzed for eight years. His physical body was helpless, and yet he provided an opportunity for the manifestation of the power of God in Christ. Now Peter finds this man, Aeneas, on his bed and said to him in verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and walk. Notice, Peter, first of all, gives all the glory to Christ for the power of this miracle. He claims none of it for himself. Notice the very next statement at the end of verse 34. And immediately he arose. Aeneas did something that he was unable to do for eight years before, because the Lord God had brought the power to heal to this weak man. The response is seen in verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Not surprisingly, this man's healing was a magnificent miracle. The power of God in physical healing resulted in the power of God being displayed in spiritual healing as the people turned to the Lord. In addition, the Apostle Peter is seen as Christ's Apostle, bringing not only physical healing, but the saving power of the gospel to those who are spiritually sick and dying. It brings us to our second miracle in part 2. Raising the dead in Joppa. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him... Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hands and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. While the miracle at Lydda was powerful, the miracle Peter does in Joppa is spectacular. Getting behind the story a little bit causes you to wonder why they called for Peter to come to Joppa and why did he have to come right away? Tabitha had died before the messengers left Joppa and getting Peter would take at least four hours for the round trip to Lydda. What did they expect Peter to do? Raising the dead was a rare thing, even in Jesus' ministry. Only three instances were recorded in the Gospels, and so far none had taken place in Acts. Had they heard about the healing of the paralyzed Aeneas and Lydda? Had they thought that perhaps, since Jesus healed the lame and raised some from the dead, perhaps Peter could do so too? Well, immediately upon arrival, Peter is taken to where Tabitha's body is laid. She was clearly a special servant to the church in Joppa and particularly to the widows for whom she made clothing. It's a sad scene with the widows who clearly loved her deeply, weeping at her loss. Then Peter's actions and words echo what Jesus did and said when he raised Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. Peter moved everyone out of the room and said the words, Tabitha, arise. Very similar to the words Jesus spoke, In Mark 5, Talitha, kumi, which means little girl arise. And in the language of the day, they sounded very similar. One difference between Jesus and Peter is that Peter fell on his knees and prayed before speaking the words, Tabitha, arise. You see, Peter could not do as the Lord Jesus has done. Merely speak the word as though the power to heal came from inside of himself. Peter was just a man. But Jesus was God incarnate, God made flesh. Peter's power was a gift from Christ, and his ability to perform miracles was dependent upon the will and power of God working through him. I think there's a couple lessons here. First, there is a lesson for us that God, through Christ, is living and active in our world. God still does miracles today. Although with the passing of the apostles, the writing of the New Testament scriptures, the establishment of the church, we at Omaha Bible Church teach that the gift of healing, that is miracles done directly through men have passed from the scene now that the foundation of the church has been laid and there are no more apostles. Yet today God still works miracles. The Christian faith is founded on miracles. The incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus are miracles of God. Our faith in God is a miraculous work which God does in sinful people who don't deserve His grace. And just when you think things are bad and getting worse for the young church, Christ calls Saul on the Damascus road and Saul believes in the Lord. Christ restores health to Aeneas. Raises a much-loved lady of the church from the dead in Joppa. With the results recorded in verse 42... It became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. God does this. Into the gloom and tears of Joppa, He brought joy and gladness. When least expected, the unexpected grace of God comes shining through. God is still healing, physically and spiritually. And God through Christ is directing the course of this world. And He supernaturally holds the church in His hand and will not let us go. Second, there was a lesson here for Peter. There was a reason why God enabled him to raise Tabitha to life here at this place and time and nowhere else. The next incident we come to in Acts chapters 10 and 11 is the conversion of Cornelius, a Gentile Roman soldier serving an occupying army in the promised land of Israel. The miracle of raising Tabitha from the dead along with the one in Lydda, reinforced Peter's authority as an apostle, as a messenger of God. Peter would soon be criticized for eating unclean food with uncircumcised men. Things that at this moment in time, in Acts chapter 9, Peter believes to be sin. Yet God was building Peter up, raising him up, strengthening his heart and mind, giving him a firm understanding that he is God's messengers on God's mission. One line, the last verse of chapter 9, gives us a clue of what is to come. Verse 43 says, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. We might miss the point today because we don't have the experiences, most of us, with what is represented here with Peter. A tanner was an individual who had daily contact with dead animals and the hides associated with them. And as such, he was, in the Jewish mind, a defiled individual. So Jewish people thought it was improper and unclean, even sinful, to have any contact whatsoever with dead animals and therefore with a tanner. In the very nature of Simon's business, he was unclean. And yet, Peter the Apostle is now staying with Simon, a tanner of dead animal hides. It seems the Lord is already working on Peter, opening his mind just a bit and anticipating what is to come. That brings us to part three. Cornelius sees a vision from God. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Here, Luke tells us of the vision that Cornelius had. Cornelius is described as a a centurion probably in charge of around 100 men. And he is also a centurion in Caesarea. In Caesarea, that is the city of Caesar. The city was named for the emperor of Rome. It was the center of Roman rule in the land of Israel. Herod had a a palace here in Caesarea. Like Jerusalem in Israel stands for the Jews. So Caesarea stands for and symbolizes roman dominance over israel one other striking thing about centurions in the new testament is that they appear in four different places and all of the centurions in the new testament are spoken of in a positive light particularly when you consider they're part of an occupying army that's pretty high praise well cornelius is described as a devout man He probably was what would be called a God-fearer, a Gentile who had come to appreciate and was influenced by the one God of Judaism, but he was not circumcised, and so therefore, by the doctrine of the Jews, not a proper convert to the faith. He is said to be a man who gives much alms, and in verse 7, we read that he had household servants and a soldier attached to him who is also described as a devout man, probably also a God-fearer. So I think we can say with reference to Cornelius, he's a moral man, certainly not a believer in Christ at this point in time. Cornelius does as God tells him and sends three of his men to track down and bring Peter back to Joppa about 30 miles away just as the Lord told him to do in his vision. That brings us to part four. Peter sees a vision from God. Verse 9 of chapter 10. The next day, Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. It's about noontime, the sixth hour, according to Jewish time. Peter the Apostle, in Joppa, decides he wants to be alone. So he went up to the housetop to pray. The housetops were largely flat. He could go up there and it would be quiet. And he became a bit hungry. And evidently, he made his hunger known to his host because they were making preparations for food. And he falls into a trance. And in his vision, he sees a large sheet let down from heaven. It has four corners. And in the midst of it are all kinds of four-footed beasts and wild animals and creeping things and fowl of the air Many of which are the unclean animals which Jewish individuals under the law of Moses were forbidden to eat. It's a kind of Noah's ark of animals. They, they are all here in Peter's vision. Now in Leviticus 11, very detailed descriptions are given of the clean things and the unclean things that the Jews could eat. Generally speaking, Jewish people could eat animals that chewed the cud and had cloven feet. So cattle, goats, and sheep were clean. But any other animals, like pigs and hogs, were forbidden to them. They were unclean. And the sheet that is let down from heaven is obviously intended to represent that unclean animals are no different than the clean animals in the eyes of God. And then the voice comes to Peter at the end of verse 13. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. That would be a clear violation of the Mosaic law if Peter were to do this. Because as a Jewish man, he was not permitted to eat these things. Peter's response is very interesting. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter understands who he is talking with. He calls him Lord, and then he tells him, No, I won't do it. I can't do it. Why does Peter respond like that? It's hard for us to understand this from our perspective, that is, from a Gentile perspective. For a Jewish man, he is taught these food laws from the time he is a child. He is taught to keep the Mosaic law, circumcise his male children, observe the Sabbath, pray at the prescribed time each day, and follow the dietary rules of the law. It's the dietary laws that God is using to make his point. Why are they so important? Their purpose was moral and spiritual. Designed to make a clear distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Canaan. This is one of the ways God taught Israel to regard themselves as different from the rest of the world. To be set apart for God. The dietary laws are designed as a call to holiness, as a reminder to Israelites of their special relationship with God as His chosen people. Some also point out that the laws regarding food elevate the simple act of eating food into a religious ritual. A Jew who observes the food laws cannot eat anything without having to think about and be reminded of the fact that he is a Jew. And as such, set apart by God as one of His chosen nation. These laws are so ingrained in the minds of Jews, they are still practiced to this day, almost 3,500 years after the law of Moses was given. Jews still circumcise their male children. On your flight over to Israel, if you go to visit, the Jews will stand up and pray at the designated times. They'll go to the back of the cabin or the foot of the cabin. When you get to Israel, the food you eat in Israel follows the dietary laws and everything shuts down on Friday afternoon, doesn't reopen again until after sunset on Saturday in observance of the Sabbath. I worked a number of times as an election worker at a local synagogue. We couldn't bring any food into the synagogue. No snacks, no lunch, no anything. We had to either buy it from the Jewish ladies in the hallway. I thought that was an interesting business proposition. (laughs) Or go out for lunch. Why? So us Gentiles, uneducated and unaccustomed to the dietary rules of the Mosaic Law, wouldn't inadvertently contaminate their synagogue with unclean foods and thus make their synagogue unclean. Peter just cannot fathom He cannot conceive that God is telling him to accept and eat anything that is unclean. But God is unrelenting. He graciously does not accept Peter's answer but continues to call Peter to do something that's inconceivable to him. Look at verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Jesus had said a similar thing during his earthly ministry. In Mark chapter 7 verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And now the reality of that is starting to come home to Peter. Jesus is no lawbreaker. God is no lawbreaker. And Peter is beginning to get an inkling about the fact that in Christ, a Gentile may enter the people of God, the body of Christ, the church, without going through judaism now that of course is not intended to suggest that we are not under the law of god or it is an expression or that it is as it is an expression of the mind of god the moral law of the ten commandments is largely repeated in the new testament and the morality set out in the new testament ultimately expressed in the fact that believers should walk by the spirit of god is the highest form of morality so we need to be careful in our affirmation of the fact that we are not under the Mosaic law to either believe or create the impression that we are not responsible for the highest standards of holy living as Christians. But here it's evident from what has happened that now as a result of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and as a result of the rendering of the veil and the temple in two on the day Christ died on the cross, that the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law has happened. A Gentile may now enter the church and experience fellowship as the people of God without going through the gate of Judaism. And in fact, as a result of what Christ has done, the Gentiles with Jews are fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise of God in Christ by the Gospel. One might ask, What does this reference to eating unclean things have to do with the salvation of the Gentiles? Well, it's a short step for Peter to go from clean Gentile food to clean Gentiles. Because Peter had been taught that it was not proper for him to even eat with Gentiles. That incidentally was not taught in the Old Testament, but it was a practice because the Gentiles so often dealt with things that were unclean. It was just considered safer for Jews to stay away from Gentiles as much as possible. That way, they would never be exposed to the possibility of defilement, which was the characteristic of these Gentiles. And if Peter could accept that Gentile food is clean, it's a very short journey for him to accept that Gentiles are clean as well and thus forgiven in Christ. And that's the reason God is patiently and graciously bringing Peter along in this way. What Peter thinks can't be done because it's inconceivable to his current mindset and thinking will soon be seen by him as the grace of God through the gospel to the Gentiles. From Peter's perspective, and the perspective of all Jewish Christians before Cornelius, This is an inconceivable thought. Look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 10. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the man and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Just at that time, by the providence of God, the three men from Cornelius arrived. They came into the city of Joppa. Peter still does not fully understand the implications of what God has just told him, but he's going to learn. And he's going to give God the opportunity to teach him by trusting in what God has told him. And so the Spirit says to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. And so Peter goes down. And the men are there. They've come from Cornelius. And as they ask for the man, Simon, he says, I'm the one you were looking for. And notice what he says next. What is the reason for your coming? Peter's looking for more information. And so they tell him about Cornelius and the angel who told them how to find him. And so Peter, recognizing that this is the sovereign hand of God, invites them in and makes plans to go with them the next morning to Cornelius, the Gentile Roman centurion in the Gentile city of Caesarea. As I conclude our message this morning, let me make a couple of points. First of all, it's really hard for us to understand and share Peter's struggles over food. But don't miss the fact that in the end, Peter yielded entirely to Jesus' command. Peter did what Jesus asked him to do, even though it was different and new and extremely uncomfortable for him. Peter's response was to say essentially, Your will be done, Lord. Your will be done. Is that our attitude? As Christ challenges our present thinking and grows us to be more like Christ? In our scripture reading this morning, it was clear we as believers are called to love our enemies just as God loved us and sent His Son for us even though we were His enemies. Let's not forget who we are. We are sinners saved by grace. We are the unjust, the unrighteous And Jesus, the righteous, died for us. In light of that, what thoughts and attitudes do we need to examine today? What ideas do we have in our own minds that we need to take to the foot of the cross of Christ and call ourselves to repentance before Him? Secondly, there's more than just dietary choices going on here. The end of clean and unclean food is the announcement of a new time in God's redemptive plan. It very practically represents the passing of the old covenant and the ushering in of the new. There will be no more sacrifices offered. No longer is worship to be carried out in a temple in Jerusalem. No longer is there to be a priesthood which wears special garments and performs sacrifices for sin. No longer are the taboos of the clean and the unclean animals and the other practices that are set out in the Mosaic Law valid in the age of the New Covenant. They have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle John writes in the first chapter of his Gospel, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Holy Scriptures which so marvelously set out the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. And may we, by your grace, even as we go through trials and suffering, remember the love you have for us in Christ and be comforted by the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. As we encounter those at work, in our neighborhoods, in our family, our friends, those who are opposed to your gospel and your word. May we love them in our deeds and in our speech. May we speak the good news that Christ has died for sinners. May we do so in love. And then, Lord, we pray that we will strive to have the pattern of our lives reflect Christ who loved us and has freed us from slavery to sin by shedding his own blood as our substitute. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.